All right, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, we're actually going to, the, the text is on the screen. It's 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, but I want to give a little context by reading the scriptures. And so, again, Bible study principle, there's a, we call it top and tail, um, the beginning and the end. This, this is bookended by honor. Honor is um, at the beginning of chapter 5, and it is, it ends, the section ends in verse 2 of chapter 6. So I, don't, I want to refresh our memories with this whole section as a unit by reading the whole thing, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 1 through chapter 6 and verse 2. The Word of God says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But anyone who does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let the widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows for when their passions for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander." For some have already strayed, from, strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox, when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden." 
Let all those who are under, the, under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we close out today this particular section in Scripture, my prayer is that these instructions for our household as a church and our households we call families will not just be a momentary listening to, to teaching and preaching, but rather they would be something that inhabit our daily lives. We thank you for Jesus that makes our obedience to your goodness and to your love possible. We are blessed by your instruction. So we ask that you would give us ears to hear. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the text that we have before us today, we find the, the last of Paul's instruction regarding particular groups within the congregation. So we see, we read, and Paul talks about the care of, of um, older men and older women, and he addresses the care of widows and the treatment of pastors and elders. The next question is, how are they... How are those that are bond servants or slaves exhorted to relate to their earthly masters? In chapter 5, in verse 1, um, we, we see in chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women, women as sisters in all purity, and then honor. Um, this honor carries through um, this particular section. And we, we notice that within the church, um, we have quite a diversity, right? There's a whole bunch of different groups that, that Paul charges Timothy to honor within the church. Um, we need to, in our church, both celebrate our unity that we have in Christ, as well as the fact that we're not the same that there is diversity in our, in our body. Um, we first, in order to do this, we, we have to know for certain that in Christ we are truly one, that we are one together. Do you know that? Do you understand that? That you have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you are united, you are baptized into the body of Christ. You are one as Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. So we have this level ground because of the work of Jesus Christ that brings us together in this glorious and most beautiful unity as the bride, the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. We are one, but yet we are diverse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 um, doesn't change the fact that there are Jews and Gentiles. 
It doesn't change the fact that there are men and women. And it doesn't change the fact that there are those that are slaves and those that are free. It, it simply paints the reality that we are all in Christ, but yet there is a diversity in Christ. And so we see that this section, um, honor is the glue of the household. It is what holds people together. And it's why we've been looking, are you exercising this honor? Do you know why you should exercise this honor? Um, how, do, how does the gospel um, speak into um, this, this honor? Um, uh, who is to be honored? We, we've looked at that. Well, everyone is to be honored that is in the body of Christ. And what we've seen is that every human is to be honored because they are made in God's image. They image the creator God. Every Christian is to be honored because we are one in Christ. Uh, so Paul teaches this, this doctrine of unity um, clearly in other places. But in, in this section, chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 2, Paul makes some distinction. Right? So older men and women are to be treated with a special kind of honor. Right? It's not generic honor. A widows too, they are to be cared for in their, their distress. Those that are truly widows are to be cared for and honored in that way. Those who hold the office of elder are to be honored and given an authoritative position that they hold. They, and some deserve double honor. Um, so here what we have is Christian bondservants. They as well are to show honor to their earthly masters and especially to their Christian masters. Now, we don't have this kind of relationship um, in our congregation of bondservant or servants. Right? We, we don't understand, we don't know um, what that is and what that is like. Um, so we have to use our imagination. It, this is a very complex thing. And um, I, I'm excited to preach this message because it does have a twist at the end. There's something here in this section that I think because he ends with this, that tends to really perk up our antennas. And if we don't oversimplify it and say, well, this is simply about your relationship to your boss, right? That could be an application, but that's not what this is about. This is far more complex when we talk about people who are masters and servants. This really, because in some ways, this will offend our cultural senses, it has the potential to drive the gospel in a deeper understanding of how the gospel works in our hearts. So this is like, of this section, right, this is the climax here for us, especially in our, in our particular culture. Um, so before we jump into this, let me say a few things about slavery, Okay, I need to say a few things about slavery, um, and I can't say everything because I don't want to spoil the ending. Right? So I'm going to say a few things to kind of set the table um, about slavery. So modern-day Christians will sometimes wonder, why did Paul command bondservants to honor their masters? And notice he makes a distinction. Those that oppress them and their Christian masters. Why did he do that? And not command their master simply to free 
their servants? It's a valid question. Here's a few things that will help us. The form of slavery that existed in first century Rome was not the same as the slavery that existed in America not very long ago. Um, Our nation has been plagued um, by a view of race that one man is inferior to another. But that is not the same. We're not looking at chattel slavery here in this passage. So slavery existed in the first century Rome, but it was not driven by racist ideology. It was not driven by racist ideology. Now I say that, but I don't want to minimize slavery in first century Rome. It was brutal. It was brutal. People came into slavery in various ways. Um, It was brutal. Not all masters treated their slaves or bond servants um, unjustly. Um, In fact, what we know is that there are many who treated their, their bond servants or their slaves kindly. Some were considered members. The slaves were considered members of the household and were treated exactly like sons and daughters. But not all masters treated their slaves this way. Um, It was, let's not minimize it by the examples of where we see it, where people were treated well. There are many reasons why people came to be slaves. Some were captured in military conquest. Others were sold as slaves after being abandoned at birth. That was a practice of babies that were unwanted. It was a common practice. Babies that were unwanted just left out to die, and sometimes people would would take them in simply to sell them as slaves. Um, Some sold themselves into slavery to escape poverty and debt. While um, the slave trade was, the slave trade was um, plagued by oppression, um, it is not impossible to imagine some situations where a man or woman could come to be a slave justly and be treated justly by their masters. I'm thinking of those situations where a man or woman would sell themselves as a bondservant to work for a set amount of time and a set amount of pay to escape poverty or debt. Though unfortunate, that kind of indentured servant or bondservant or servitude is not unjust. It's unfortunate, but it's not unjust. So we have to make sure that we're thinking along some of these lines, that we, that we, it's, it, it's a complex thing. This is not an easy thing to think about. We need to understand that slavery was pervasive um, in first century Rome. In Ephesus, more than a third of the population would be slaves. So you take this auditorium, right, and you you draw a line somewhere right down here, in here. That side of this auditorium are bondservants, slaves. That was church for them. That was the context. Probably, though, to be fair, when we look at how the gospel moves through the first century, the church probably was more like the line was here. 
So there probably were more servants. You know, it's a guess. We don't see it in the text. But there were probably more slaves in the church than what was representative in the population. When Paul wrote concerning the attitude that bondservants should have towards their masters, he was not speaking to the goodness or badness of the institution of slavery. Instead, he was addressing simply the reality of the situation. The reality was this. In the church at Ephesus, there were bondservants and there were masters. In 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, the question is not, is this good? But simply, how should bondservants act towards their masters given the reality of the situation? Now, Paul, in other places does address the institution of slavery. We notice that when he does, one, he never speaks of the institution of slavery in positive terms. It is not rooted in creation. Rather, it is a sin against creation. It is not an institution to be desired. Its existence can only be explained by the fall of man into sin and its effects. That's the only explanation for it. Um, second, Paul warns, that, or Paul does warn masters to treat their bondservants well. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, he calls masters to honor their bondservants. He says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And third, we have one letter of Paul that is particularly revealing, the letter of Philemon. Evidently, Philemon was a wealthy Christian who had bondservants, and one of them, his name was Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away and came in contact with Paul where he heard the gospel and became a believer. And what does Paul do? He sends Philemon back to Onesimus along with the letter, which urged, he, he sent Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter and urged Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother in Christ. And he tells him to treat him well. You see, as modern day Americans, we can tend to look at this particular passage through a lens, and it is very revealing because we read this passage. And what do we say? Why didn't Paul do away with the institution of slavery? Why didn't he free the slaves? We don't have time to get into what that would mean. Right? And, and here's the short answer. If Paul said to those that were bondservants or slaves, well, you are free in Christ. Right? You have human rights in this first century, you just need to, masters, release your slaves. Slaves, you are free. Certain death would have resulted. But there's something here that is at work. Right? The, this is a complex thing, I understand. But there's something else at work that Paul gets that I want you to get too. That's right here in the text. And we see it in this section, but it lands with a thud right here, right here. Because here is the place that we push back against honor, right? 
You know, this whole section, we're like, oh, yes, you know, children should honor their parents. We get that. Oh, yes, we need to give the pastors honor. You know, oh, yes, we should honor. Oh, yes, but when we, as Americans, when we read this, now all of a sudden, we've got a problem with the Bible. That's a place where we really can learn. And I pray you do right here in the text. So let's get, let's get to it. First, this passage is divided into two parts. We've got three points. Um, so really two points in an application, and we'll spend some time in that application. So here, here are the, the, the two points in, in the application. One, honor non-believing masters. So Paul says, let all who are under a yoke under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Honor non-believing masters. Right here, Paul, Paul says this. Let all who are under this yoke give honor. Honor the person who is oppressive? Now, let me say what this is not saying. Right? And again, this is, this is complex. This is not saying that if you are here today in an abusive relationship, that you ought to stay. Absolutely no way, no how. That's a misunderstanding of what I'm saying and what the text is saying. Okay, this, is, this is more complex than that. We would never as elders, as pastors, tell you that you need to remain somewhere in a situation where you are abused if there is the possibility of escape. There have been times where we have instructed individuals to, um, to, be, to physically distance themselves and um, there have been crimes committed, and those have been reported. We've been in situations like that. So we're not saying that, okay? Are we good with that? Right, so this is first century Rome in Ephesus, right? With all of the context we've painted. And he says, you're in this situation. You might have a non-believing master who is just and kind and good, but you might have one that's incredibly oppressive. He says, do what? Show honor. Why? Well, because you, there's something that's at work. There's something that's at work. Um, it's the leaven of the gospel. I have to think about how I think about this. Um, you know, I've always, we always at the table of communion have unleavened bread, but leaven in the Bible is used in two different ways. It's used as sin and it's used as the gospel. Sin affects everything and so does the gospel. I at least can get that. I can't get a whole lot of amens out of you guys this morning. Right? So here, that's what Paul is, that's what Paul's getting at. He says, he says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, honor, honor, give honor to a master as worthy of honor, not because of his ethical actions towards you, 
but because of that relationship that you're in, so that the name of God and the teaching, the gospel, may not be reviled. Act in a way, carry yourself in a way that they might see God's good news. Why was Paul so concerned that bondservants honor their unbelieving, master, unbelieving earthly masters? It's that one reason. You think about this. The glory of God amongst the nations and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ was the motive of those who were mistreated as bondservants to honor their masters. Apparently, these non-believing masters permitted these Christians these Christian servants, to assemble in the Christian congregation. And what would happen if these Christians returned to treat their masters with contempt? What would happen? God's name would be blasphemed. The teaching of Jesus would be scorned. The glory of God in the furtherance of Christ's kingdom was the leading concern for the apostle that it should be it should be their concern, and it should be our concern as well. Now, I know it's legend, and, um, but it's worth repeating at this time every year. But it has to do with St. Patrick, one of my favorite holidays, St. Patrick's Day, right? Because it is one in which, for, for other reasons, rather than celebrating a, a, a Christian who spread the gospel all through Ireland, right? There's other reasons that your neighbors probably celebrate the holiday. But it was Patrick who was a servant. He was sold into slavery. And the, the legend has it that he, was, he escaped and then under the conviction of, of God, returned. Now that's, that's true. But he returned. He returned to his master. You can see the power and the impact that that had as he returned to that place that he was a slave, desiring for those people to hear the gospel. You know, what Paul is saying here is honor non-believing masters because of the sake of the gospel. Now, that's a really hard thing to do. This is where this passage just... It's abrasive to us culturally, and we'll get to that, because we want to say that is unjust. But Paul later in this passage is going to say godliness with contentment is great gain. Second, on our believing masters, look at verse 2. Paul turns his attention to the bondservants who had believing masters and says this, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And then he says this, notice it, teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. You know, so we see here by inference that in first century Rome, the Roman context that Christians had bondservants, and they were called to treat them justly. And it's not hard to imagine um, that there would be 
masters and servants within the same congregation worshiping together. You know, imagine a person falling into poverty um, and being taken into a wealthy household to serve for a time, being compensated for their labor, treated with dignity and respect, and eventually set free. This happened all the time in the first century. In fact, some bond servants decided never to leave that household because of the kindness and the goodness of that, the master's treatment. They, they would commit to serve for a lifetime. Right? There's, there's an issue of witness here, and the witness goes directly to how you're managing your household within the city, within the palace, how the, how the house, or what's called in the Greek oikos, right? How the household made up the household of the church and how together these households witness to the glory of God. This has not changed to this day. But what has changed? What has changed is our understanding of both of those households. And it needs to be reformed by the, the word of God, by the scriptures themselves. So how does this passage apply to us? How does it apply to us? Well, there's certain passages, like 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4, verse 3, that we know exactly how to apply. Um, that passage says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a pretty easy one-to-one application. Like, we understand that. We get that. The application of this passage um, is a little more complicated than that. So let me give you a couple of suggestions. One, Paul commands Christian bondservants to show honor to their masters, even if they were unbelieving, harsh, and unjust. Then it's also true that we should show honor to those over us even if they are dishonorable people. They are not to be honored because they're honorable, but because of the authority that God has established in them over us. Romans 13, verse 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now again, we have to be careful we don't stretch Romans 13 to mean more than it means. When somebody who is over us is not honoring the authority over them and there is injustice, right? the situation gets more complex, but we are still called to honor them who are, who are over us. Right? There's, there's a tension there in the series God and Government will help will help with that. That's why that series was planned on the heels of this. Right? Because it's important that both of that we hold both of those things in balance. I've heard Romans chapter 13 lately used um, on all kinds of things that it doesn't apply to. But I'm sure John will cover that. This principle of honor is first learned in the home. We see that in this passage. This principle of honor is first learned in the home. It's learned of children and their parents, it's learned of husbands and wives. Um, the same sort of thing can, can be said of our relationships within the household of Christ, the church, uh, the relationship between elders and church, that we are to honor those that are over us. 
Second, it is true that if Paul commanded Christian bondservants to honor their Christian masters, then it is also true that we must pursue contentment concerning our particular place in life, guarding our hearts against covetousness and protecting the congregation from division. Right? Can, can you see how I came to this point of application in the text? Imagine the danger in the church at Ephesus in a congregation where masters and bondservants worshiped side by side. In Christ, they were one. In Christ, they were equal. But in the world, they were far from equal. One had more than the other. One had authority over the other. How easy it would have been for the bondservant to grow jealous and discontent and bitter towards God and their earthly masters. This certainly must have been a problem or we wouldn't see it here in the text. But he writes these words, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Right? This gets at the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. It requires of us full contentment with our own condition, with, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is theirs. It forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieve, um, grieving at the good of our neighbor and all the inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Covetousness is a sin of the heart and it is a deadly sin because it is like death, it is never satisfied, and it is constantly consuming. Being content doesn't mean that we are complacent. It does not mean that we are complacent. In fact, he's going to talk about the next section leads into this contentment, and we will we'll talk more about that. In fact, we'll refer back to this. Let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up in this way. When we think about the structure of a household, Paul is getting at this. This confronts our Western mind because we have imbibed the philosophy of individuals like Rene Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. I'm an individual. And see, what, what we look at is we have this atomistic view of who we are. It's an atom. It's a single thing. So an atomistic view. Think of like a, a bag full of ball bearings, little BBs, right? right? The bag is full. If you take your hand and you press that bag together, what happens to all of those BBs in that bag? What do they do? They compress. Right? They, they compress. They conform to what they're put into. That's a problem. Paul's saying that's not the right view. Because when we read this passage, what do we say? Free the slaves. Now, there's, there's, there's reason for that, but not in the way that we as Americans approach it. See, what Paul is saying here is that there, are, there is the structure of the church, the household, and there's the structure of the home, the household, 
And we have to be careful that we define the household by Scripture. We tend to think about the nuclear family, and we don't see the definition of the nuclear family as we define it oftentimes in Scripture. And it's certainly not as our culture defines it. Because recently, we're defining family as, you know, I live on, I, I live on a particular street in Kalamazoo. It could be me and, and my two neighbors across the street and the guy down the road, um, according to... Um, our culture, and, and soon probably according to the laws of the state, we could define that as a family. Oh, and throw in a, you know, a dog and a cat as well. Right? That makes up a family. You see, if we have this atomistic view of who we are, that it's about me and it's about my rights and it's, it's about this, then we will conform to whatever container we, were, we are put in, and we will conform to the external pressures that we are in. That we are. The, the, the world system, and I, and I would say those forces that even are shaping our government today, they, they, they do not view a fornicating, pot-smoking population as any threat. Because... That population, that kind of thinking is only thinking about themselves in an atomistic way. What do we have described here in this passage? We have a molecular structure, right? It's, think about, um, not Lincoln Logs, but those like connects, right? When you think about this. Now, I know scientists are going to, like, you're scientists in the room, you're going to connect, you're going to, like, critique my illustration, and that's okay, but it works for me, right? So think about those, you know, you have, when you think about the molecular, a molecular structure, and, and I, I, I was looking these things up, and I was like, I don't understand the science, ionic bonds and these kinds of things. I'm just going to go with third grade science, okay? Um, you, you know, a molecular structure is, has like these things that are, there's a, there's a bond between them, and there's multiple, um, there's multiple things in that system, Right? And you put that structure in a bag, and guess what happens? It's now resistant. It doesn't conform. God made it that way. And so when we, pray, when we look at this passage, and, and, and it's this passage that we get at, and we say, hey, we don't like what Paul is instructing here, but what's at stake is the household. That's a theme of this whole letter what's at stake is that molecular structure and we say free that person from that molecular structure at all costs and what paul's saying no he's actually saying he's he's actually saying no no there there is suffering in this world you cannot get away from it the reason that we have a lot of the anxiety that we have today in our lives and in our families and in our culture is that we are simply trying to get away from suffering in the world. We're trying to eliminate all of it without God. And here what Paul is actually telling us, he's echoing the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You will have suffering in the world. So how are you going to deal with it? You see, this, this suffering in our culture, dealing with injustice, right? dealing with injustice and trying to get away from every single pain and discomfort leads to discontentment. 
What we're trying to do when we press back against this and we say, God, I don't like the place or the way that you have structured certain things in the world for the propagation of your gospel. We become discontent and it leads to disillusionment and that disillusionment leads to a loss of faith, a loss of faith in God and hopeless idolatry. You see, what we do when we press against this passage and we say, why didn't Paul destroy slavery? What we are saying is that we determine our own need. We determine our own need. That is nothing but idolatry. And I want you to think about slavery for a moment. Think about it in our context as a nation. Who brought about the end of chattel slavery? It was Christians with an open Bible. Don't forget that. Study your history. It was God's word. In fact, you can see this. People wiser than I have mapped the impact of the Bible, and roughly it looks like this in the world, where you see the impact of the Reformation. We have, the fir- we have first world countries where Catholicism that has a, a lesser view of the Bible more equal with tradition and and other things, what you see is a developing world. And then you see the places where there was no scripture and they are less than the developing world. Now that's an ever-changing thing that's constantly on the move. But the Bible brings this flourishing. Why? Because it plants the seed of the gospel within the structure of society that God has created and it causes humanity to flourish. And right now what we're seeing in our nation is the destruction of that simply by saying you're an individual. I was sharing with um, our, our family, um, we had a family ministry meeting I was sharing with them a study, and I didn't share this um, with them, that in this particular study from 2000, um, it was, it was a, an older study, but it was a longitudinal study, so it went over a long period of time. Um, it, it, one of the things that the study determined is that young people that are leaving church are making that decision by the time that they're 12 years old, between 12 and 14 years old. And one of the things that it, that it looked at, and this is what I didn't... Um, I didn't share, is that there is this disillusionment um, that young people are experiencing. And it's because as churches and as families, we're saying we know each other's needs or I know my needs more than I'm allowing God to determine my needs. What was interesting in this study was that um, parents that treated the church like a buffet. And, and so they said, well, you know, there's this program at this church over here. And I'm going to get a little of this over here. And I'm going to gain this over here. The vast majority of their kids, when they did that, when they forsook the household of church and failed to work on their own family for the sake of the gospel, their kids left the faith in large numbers. You say, why is that? Why does that happen? Why does that happen? 
Well, it's because there's a particular structure that God has for the church and God has for your household. But there is this discontentment. I need this. My kids need this. And we hear it all the time. It comes from us. And so what do we do? What Ecclesiastes says, what we do is we chase after the wind. That life is like this vapor and we're constantly trying to grasp. And we're trying to, we're trying to get it. We're trying to get at it. And so what we're doing is it's endless toil. We're hoarding and storing up or we're simply spending what we have on pleasure. And this discontentment leads to disillusionment. You see, these young people that, you know, they, they've, they've bellied up to the buffet called Christianity that's served up to them and external to the structure of the home and the church What's happened is they have both explicit and implicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is this, reading God's word. We get this from God's word. But as Romans 1 says, we have this implicit knowledge. It's our experience. We're always making God in our image. In other words, we're always projecting like who God is based on our experience. And here's the problem, and this is why we need faith, is that there's always going to be a tension between what we know from God's word and what we experience on earth. So People that just, um, they get this buffet, like, hey, I'm going to meet my needs outside of the structure that God has created. They still live with the fact that there is this gap between what the Bible says and what they experience. And what they've been raised to think is that I can close the gap simply by choice. And they find out that they cannot. And so the choice becomes not Christianity, but the choice of three or four other things. And they end up chasing after the wind. But this passage is calling us to, and it's the next section, that godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. It's great gain. You see... There is suffering in the world. And what this passage, what Paul is reiterating from Ecclesiastes is that there are certain things in life that we can control. And there are certain things that we cannot control. And Ecclesiastes is all about the illusion of control. You see, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel allows us this ability to accept suffering in the world, even enter into it, even as Christ suffered. You know, if life is all about meeting one's own need, you will be stuck on that treadmill, and it is endless. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So in closing... I ask you to think about this. It's simply an acrostic, A-C-T. I'm asking you to act. How do you act? Well, what Paul is saying here is that there is suffering in life. So we need to accept it. Accept the fact that there will be suffering in life. Right? Accept the fact that you're going to have trouble in life. But there is the gospel and so commit, that's the C, 
Commit to live according to God's values in the gospel. Commit to live according to the gospel. And then finally, third, be thankful. Be thankful. You know, I think there's this connection between Ecclesiastes because in Ecclesiastes, there's a gift given to us. And the gift is simply to be present in this moment, to know that God is good and that he is sovereign. Because, you know, the rest of the day may bring, bring trouble, trauma, difficulty. But right now in this moment, God is here. And we can recount all the ways that he has blessed us. So accept suffering. Commit to live according to the gospel and give thanks. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And here's the thing. It ultimately transforms. We're, we're in the long, what the gospel is calling us is to be in the long game here, not the short game. Is to invest. Invest in our homes and invest in our church for the witness of the gospel in the world. But in order to do that, you have to allow God to determine your greatest need and not you. You have to let him be on the throne, which requires humility and repentance. So take these next few moments and consider your response to the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It's a difficult one. It's a complex one. It is not easy to move through these two verses and not have more questions now than we entered in. But yet there is the parting of clarity in this passage. Amidst our, our, the still looming questions about the issues of justice and slavery and all of those things, the, the clarity is that Jesus Christ took all injustice on himself. He died for sin. He rose again so that we too might be able to suffer when it is necessary in order that we might live in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. Putting you first and allowing you to determine our need. Lord, we pray that this would be our joy. That we would be people that would cultivate this kind of character. Lord, help us to be present in this moment. And help us to be present in the moments of our lives, to be with our children when they are in front of us. To know that we do not have to solve the suffering of others, but you are the suffering Savior that anyone can cling to. Lord, we pray that, that this passage here is so important for our time right here, right now, in this time that we find ourselves.
So I pray that you drive it deep into our hearts as we reflect. And then as we come to the table of communion, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.